You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. Make enough people mad and they'll associate your name with whatever awful thing you did forever. When the Civil War and the abolition of slavery wiped out much of his tobacco business, Dr. Samuel Mudd teamed up with John Wilkes Booth. It was Dr. Mudd who fastened a splint around Booth's broken leg and helped him escape. Although the saying did not originate with him, the doctor is often linked to the insult, Your name is Mudd. Charles Cunningham was another man with an unfortunate name, and he had only himself to blame. Cunningham was a land agent, a high-ranking member of an estate who managed the landowner's property by collecting rents and supervising maintenance. Cunningham worked for a man named John Crichton, 3rd Earl Ayrn. Lord Ayrn had come from a family dripping with aristocracy. He was also a member of the House of Lords, as well as a Knight of the Order of St. Patrick, but he would go on to be remembered most as the man who hired Charles Cunningham. Cunningham was a well-educated man who had joined the military when he was only 16. His travels with the 39th Foot Regiment took him from London to Belfast and finally to Dublin around 1850. He married shortly after that and decided to stay in Ireland permanently. Cunningham lived all over the country too, but he eventually found a more permanent home in County Mayo. Lord Ayrn owned a home there. He had hired Cunningham to be his agent, which gave him oversight over 1,500 acres. Cunningham was now in charge of farmers, servants, and other household staff, the kind of power that he believed had been ordained by God and passed on to those who deserved it. That sort of classism didn't sit well with the estate's tenants, the farmers who resented the rules and regulations their new boss had put in place. They also hated the exorbitant rents that Cunningham was tasked with collecting for the Lord. Tenant farmers had almost no rights, and although they had leased the land, the land's owner could evict them without notice, even if their rent was current and paid on time. The farmers had tried before to organize against landowners. They called for the three Fs, fair rent, fixity of tenure, and free sale. In other words, they were tired of paying a lot of money for no security. When a member of parliament named Charles Stuart Parnell heard about their plight, he stepped in to help. It wasn't just about helping the underdog, though. He needed the farmers on his side to further his agenda for Irish independence. Parnell and the newly formed Land League went to work. He gave speeches and riled up crowds, laying the groundwork for an uprising that had been years in the making. Cunningham was set to collect the rents from the Lord's tenants in September of 1880. Their crops had not been as plentiful as in past years, so the Lord gave them a 10% discount as a show of good faith. But it wasn't good enough. It was still too high. The farmers demanded at least 25% off their rent, but Lord Aaron scoffed at them. Either his farmers would pay, 
or they would be forced to leave. Cunningham got to work securing eviction notices against 11 tenants who refused to pay. After three notices had been delivered, though, one tenant named Mrs. Fitzmorris turned them away. She waved a red flag outside her home to let everyone else know what was going on. Her neighbors joined her and started throwing rocks and manure at the men until they left. Soon, all of Cunningham's servants quit. No shops in the nearby town would serve him. He wasn't beaten or intimidated. His punishment was far worse. He was ignored, ostracized by the community. And he didn't exactly do himself any favors when his letter to the Times was published in which he referred to his tenants as a howling mob. Soon, September turned into October, and Cunningham was in danger of losing a fortune in crops if they weren't harvested soon, since the farmers and laborers had all left and had threatened anyone who dared help him the Irish government deployed a small army of 50 men to help pull the crops. The endeavor ended up costing Cunningham his job with the estate, as well as several thousand pounds. He left County Mayo for Dublin, where he stayed for a few days before heading to England. Now, he would have stayed longer, but his hotel had received numerous letters from potential guests, who swore they would never stay there again if he was given a room. A year later, a new law was introduced, titled the Land Law Act of 1881, It stated that landlords could no longer evict tenants on a whim and established fixed terms of 15 years for rent. The people had won. As for Cunningham, he slipped into the United States to visit some friends, the few he still had left, who lived in Virginia. He had to use his middle name, however, as his last name had come to symbolize the treatment he'd endured back in Ireland. Not Cunningham. Cunningham was his middle name. No, Charles' real last name would go down in history as the term for the process of ostracizing bad businesses. Charles Cunningham, boycott. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant. Just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the wind down tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. 
refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her. Each in women's petite and plus sizes. And Stafford and Mutual Weave for him. Style and comfort for all. Even big and tall. Plus even more for the whole family like Levi's and Exertion. Here spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney. Make everybody count. To become an expert in one's field takes serious devotion. Hundreds, even thousands of hours must be spent practicing and perfecting. Attorney Judith Kogan studied harp at Juilliard School in New York City, an experience she documented in her 1987 book, Nothing But the Best. In the book, Kogan discussed the long hours spent by students practicing their art until late into the night. There was no time or tolerance for goofing off at Juilliard, but the dedication paid off in the end. Robin Williams, Yo-Yo Ma, and Nina Simone are just some of the school's famous former students who went on to great success later in life. Jean-Baptiste Lully also dedicated his life to his passion, music. And in a way, it was this passion that would inevitably kill him. Lully was born in Florence, Italy in 1632. While the rest of his family didn't show much interest in music, he devoted a love for it with the help of a Franciscan friar who taught him how to play guitar. From there, Lully went on to study the violin, which enabled him to entertain crowds on the street during Mardi Gras when he was only 14 years old. He would play his violin and dance while dressed up as a harlequin. A French aristocrat named Roger de Lorraine was taken with Lully's street performances. He offered to bring him back to France to work with his niece on her Italian. It was a wise decision for Lully, who found himself studying with the popular composers of the day, who spent time at the young woman's home. Lully quickly made a name for himself among the French elites, too. His musical abilities and dancing had earned him the nickname Baptiste, and great street artist. After de Lorraine's niece was exiled in 1652, Lully also left. He continued to study music and perform, eventually becoming a composer himself. A young Louis XIV had performed with him in a production of the Ballet Royal de la Nuit, after which he hired him as his royal composer. Lully demonstrated such musical acumen that he was made the superintendent of royal music once Louis took over the government. He was taken with writing new pieces, such as instrumentals, vocal arrangements, and operas to be performed for the court by royal musicians and dancers. Lully was prolific during the years that he wrote for King Louis. He was also quite animated. Musical performances were different in the 17th century than they are today. Conductors didn't often use small batons to direct the tempo of their arrangements. Instead, they wielded giant staffs that they would slam into the floor, making loud sounds to mark the speeds the musicians had to follow. 1687 was a difficult year for the royal family. Louis had lost his affection for Lully due to the composer's sexual orientation, which went against the king's beliefs. Still, Lully held him in high regard, so when Louis underwent surgery for an infection, the composer celebrated his recovery with a performance of Te Deum, a hymn based on the Apostles' Creed. Composers such as Mozart and Verde had done their own renditions, but only Lully's ended with a bang. He conducted with gusto, bringing his staff down hard on the floor beneath him. It rang out among the royal court like thunder. Now, I think we can all agree that music is special. It can consume us unlike anything else. It is all-encompassing, 
Our other senses take a back seat as we listen to the melodies that churn our emotions inside us. Perhaps that's what happened to Lali. He got lost in his music as he banged his staff, pointed and down, onto the floor. But instead of striking the floor, the sharp staff pierced something else. His own foot. In the heat of the moment, consumed by the music, he had accidentally impaled himself with his conducting staff. Before long, an abscess formed, which turned into gangrene. Lali was given one of two options. He could either have his leg amputated to save his life, or he could let the illness take him. Lali refused the amputation, telling doctors that he would rather die than give up what he called his dancing leg. Two months later, he got his wish. The gangrene spread throughout the rest of his body, into his brain, eventually killing him. His death wasn't in vain, though, as the incident helped spawn the search for alternatives to the heavy, and now deadly, conducting staff. Small sticks, sheets of paper rolled into thin tubes, and even bare hands were used in lieu of the instrument that had killed Jean-Baptiste Lally. Lally's death might have been tragic, but one thing is clear. At least he died doing what he loved. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious.